And so ends the reading, John chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. You may be puzzled by the title I've given this message, Against Magic, but as always, I hope it will become clearer to you why that title was chosen as we go forward. So the miracle of Christ feeding the 5,000 is reported in all four of the Gospels. It is the most public miracle or sign and wonder that Christ performed with more witnesses than any other. And you see, it challenges the underlying foundations of all science. Now, that's directly related to the title that I've given to this message, and that'll become clear as we go forward. You might think, well, what does science have to do with magic? A lot more than what you think. Because, you see, the underlying foundation of all science is that it excludes a sovereign God from any part of creation. The Bible reports this, however, is a true historic supernatural event that took place with thousands of witnesses. And this is certainly not the first time in our study of John that Jesus has executed or performed a miracle. If you're keeping count, it's actually the fourth in a series of miracles. And like the others, the Lord accomplishes this work for a definite purpose. But the purpose of this miracle goes far beyond simply the need to feed the hunger of a large crowd of people. Now, there are several things that I would like for us to take away from this study today. Here is the first. There is a lesson here for us about Christ's almighty power. So what we've been told in these verses is that Jesus of Nazareth has taken five loaves of bread and two small fish and fed 5,000 people. Not only did he do that, after all those people had eaten their fill, the disciples were able to gather up 12 baskets of fragments. Now, friends, what we are being told here is that Jesus Christ came, uh, called into existence, excuse me, he called into existence that which did not exist before. This was not an illusion done by a, quote, magician. It was not the delusional hysteria of a mass crowd. It was nothing less than a supernatural wonder at the hands of the divine Son of God. In previous miracles, like the healing of the sick, there was something that already existed that was being restored or healed. But here, with only five loaves and two fish, something must have been created that up to that time did not exist. Now, I want to suggest to you that in addition to showing us the power of God over his creation, this is also symbolic of that same power that he has in the spiritual realm. If Christ can call material things into existence that did not previously exist, can he not, does he not, also call into new life that which did not have that life before? Jesus Christ has all power and authority over the souls and hearts of men and women. And it is precisely for that reason. Listen to me carefully, please, because some of us need to hear this. It is precisely for that reason that we should never, ever despair of anyone not becoming saved. So long as our unsaved friends are alive, as long as our unbelieving sons, daughters, fathers or mothers, husbands or wives have breath, there is hope. Praise God. Too often, I think some of us write many people off as being beyond the pale of God's grace. 
You know, we see our unsaved friends and loved ones and how hardened many of them may be to the message of the kingdom, and we conclude, well, they're never, ever going to be converted to Christ. But the testimony of Scripture is that our Father and our God can create as well as renew. By His Spirit, a new heart can be given to the worst sinner, a new conscience, a new will, because with God, nothing is impossible. After all, He saved you and me, didn't He? Now, another thing that we can take away from this study, and this is rather different than the first that we just talked about, but I think it's a valid inference, is that is it tells us something about the offices of pastor, elder, and deacon in the church. Now, you might think, well, how in the world are you getting that? All right, look again at verse 11. Now, it tells us that it's the disciples who are doing this work of passing the food around to the people. Now, I'm going to read it from the New King James Version. Because the ESV, the New American Standard, don't read it exactly this way. In the New King James, it reads, And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples, and did the disciples to those who were sitting down, and likewise the fish, as much as they wanted. Now, we've got a textual variant here in that the majority of manuscripts say he gave it to the disciples, and the disciples gave it to the people. The earlier manuscripts on which the ESV and the New American Standard are based don't have those verses. However, even if you're not going to count majority text versus critical text, the fact is, in Mark's gospel, I believe it's chapter 6, verse 41, or something like that, he reports the same story, and he includes, and, and Mark's gospel is the earliest of the four. It was written before the others that it was the disciples who helped Jesus distribute these things. I mean, it's a, it's a valid inference, even if it's not in the text. I mean, for goodness sakes, there are 5,000 people here. Jesus is one man. Do we really think that he's going to be the one who hands out every piece of fish and bread to each one of those 5,000 people? No, he clearly had help. And that's why in Mark's gospel and also in the majority text of the John's Gospel, it tells us the disciples helped him. So I believe that in this we see the pattern of how the spread of the kingdom message should work in the local church. Now, in our denomination, the Bible Presbyterian Church General Synod, we believe there's a distinction between pastors, elders, and deacons, the so-called three-office view. The elders... And the deacons are elected by the congregation, and they have the responsibility with the pastor of the administrative and, in the case of the elders, the spiritual oversight of the entire church. And pastors, who are members of the presbytery, not members of the local congregation, they rule, quote-unquote, and oversee this work with the elders. But the pastor also is given the responsibility of preaching and teaching and the administration of word and sacrament. Now, I say that there's a pattern here for us in that. I hope you take note of the fact, as I just said, Jesus did not try to feed each and every one of these people by himself. He had help. As a matter of fact, the disciples did most of the footwork. It was not the hands of the apostles that made the bread and fish increase and multiply, but it was their calling and their work to receive it with all humility and distribute it faithfully. And so as church members, we all need to realize that Christ never intended for his work to be carried on by means of only, say, one pastor and one deacon or one elder. And no matter how godly any pastor may be, he's not a mediator between God and you. 
Preachers, pastors, ministers, elders, deacons, theologians do not have the power to forgive sins. It is the business of the pastors and the elders to receive the bread of life, which the Lord provides, and I'm using that here as a metaphor for the word of God, the scriptures, and to teach and to preach and otherwise distribute that word, that message, among the members of the local church. Because no matter how many seminary degrees a pastor may have, and no matter how long he's been ordained, he simply cannot make the word of God effectual to the saving of souls or the imparting of new life. That is the sovereign work of God's Spirit alone. The pastor's responsibility, along with the elders and deacons, is to be a faithful distributor of that spiritual food which the Lord has provided in his word, the Bible. Okay, then the next thing is, we see here the sufficiency of the kingdom message for the needs of everyone, the whole world, everyone. Now, we have seen this sort of thing before in John's Gospel. John has on several occasions gone to some lengths to show us that while there are indeed men like those Pharisees who are unwilling to come to Christ, nevertheless, there are large masses of people upon whom the Lord bestows his grace. And all of those who are the recipients of that grace are made willing to come to him. And what we are seeing here is a template of the fact that those who come to Christ for salvation far outnumber those who do not. Yes, it may well be that Jesus was rejected by few, a few people in his own hometown of Nazareth. But as we've seen before, though, an entire village of Samaritans came to believe and follow Jesus. Yes, it is true that there are those who refuse to come to Christ, men like these Pharisees, but it is equally true that there are multitudes, legions of people symbolized here in this crowd of 5,000 who do come to Christ and follow him. Not to say that everybody in the 5,000 were absolutely faithful and true in their commitment to following Christ. Some of them were not, and we'll see that in a moment. But the point is, it is the world, untold millions and billions, who will come to faith in Christ in the end. In this miracle recorded for us in John 6, we see Jesus addressing the hunger of a huge army of people. And on first sight, you know how the Lord was going to do that seemed totally inadequate for the occasion. I mean, who would have ever thought of trying to satisfy so many hungry mouths with such sparse resources as five loaves of bread and two fish? And yet, as we've read with our own eyes, not only did the multitude get enough to eat, there was plenty left over. And I believe that is symbolic also of how Christ's death for his elect people provides more than enough for all who are appointed to life in the kingdom. This is the message of the kingdom, that when it is carried to the multitudes by faithful messengers, it feeds and supplies the needs of all classes and types of people on earth. Paul spoke of this in 1 Corinthians 1.18 where he wrote, For the word of the cross is foolishness or folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Five loaves of bread and two fish may seem grossly inadequate for the occasion of a large crowd. But when those provisions were blessed by Christ and distributed by his faithful disciples, they were more than sufficient. Now, despite what some churches are saying in our day and have been saying for decades... 
The message of the kingdom is not obsolete and it has not lost its power. There is always a temptation, and this goes back to the earliest days of the church, that some people give give into, and it's usually some well-intended pastor or theologian or leader, to change the kingdom message, to tone it down, to dress it up, to broaden it out, or to narrow it. And to make it a bit more emotional or a bit more intellectual. To make, more, uh, make it more appealing in modern dress and more friend, user-friendly or less offensive to sinners. But nothing less than the true kingdom message as given on the pages of Holy Scripture with nothing added and nothing taken away. Only that will feed the starving masses of a sinful world. And we here today, no less than this crowd, find ourselves in a wilderness of people starving for wholeness and peace of soul. And for all humanity, the only way to deliverance and restoration is the way of the cross. It is the way that involves believing Jesus to be who he says he is. And believing means more than just simply to believe something like one plus one equals two. I mean, that's certainly a part of it. But believing in Jesus means also that we must follow him as well. Our Westminster Confession makes it clear that while good works do not justify us, the fact is where people have been truly converted, I'm paraphrasing here, but the confession says good works inevitably follow those who've been truly converted. They go together. The the second one doesn't produce the first, but where there's true conversion, good works, the, the following after, that inevitably shows up. It means that we must receive the spiritual food and drink that he gives us through word and through sacrament. It means that we, if we are really following him, will faithfully share that food with others. And it means that we receive and share only that which the Lord himself has given us. Now, finally, and and this is where the magic is going to come in, in case you're wondering. I want you to look again at verses 14 and 15. When the people saw the sign that he'd done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Now notice this, verse 15, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, seize him, in other words, to install him as king, to force him to become their king, then what we see here in verse 15 is almost as amazing and unusual as the feeding of the 5,000 itself. Now, I don't think this means that each and every one of the 5,000 people were going to rush him and take him to try to install him as the king of Israel. But some of them clearly were. But think about this. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the great king and prophet foretold by the prophets. And he knows this. He's self-aware of who he is and what his mission is. So why would some of those people think that they needed to compel or force him to become the king of Israel? Well, the answer to that question may surprise you because it involves, yes, magic. Or I should say the discerning between biblical religion and magic. Now, the first thing you need to do is divest your mind of the image of the, of the guy on the stage with a tuxedo and the black hat and the cane pulling a rabbit out of the hat. The miracle performed here was real, but it was also a symbol. It's a symbol of the full and abundant life that Christ secures for his people. But some in that crowd here in this text, they're not interested in that. They are interested in something else. Some wanted power. Power that suited their will for a greater Israel. 
a powerful military and political force that would crush the Romans and drive out the Gentiles. Does that sound familiar today? So the effort that these people are making is one of their own agenda. They will make Jesus the king to suit their purposes. In other words, they want to control God. It's their will and purpose versus God's will and purpose. One commentator put it this way, and I quote, Men want a God they can control, and the goal of magic is man's freedom from God and from creation and the total control of all things by man, end quote. We don't often think of magic in that way because we have this, you know, uh, sideshow circus stage image of the magician. But historically, that's not what magic is. I mean, that's that's a simplistic representation of it. See, I told you something at the beginning of how that what the Lord did here challenged the foundations of science. And what that means is not what you might have assumed when I first said it. Because modern science is essentially a form of magic in terms of what it tries to accomplish. Science declares the sovereignty of man. Scripture declares the sovereignty of God. Ever since the fall of man, the pagan world, past and present, has been obsessed with magic. That is the control of creation and of God. It may have been in primitive form, such as the, the village shaman or witch doctor. It may be the modern counterpart, which would be the so-called scientist in his lab coat, surrounded by flasks and test tubes and computers. The goal of any form of magic is to become a god, to displace the true god, to claim control over creation and society. And for us today in the year 2023, we should see this. If you don't, I'm concerned for you. You should see this in stark relief. We see it in the drive toward a world totally governed by self-appointed elites who think they know more than you do. People who use politics and today especially medical science as part of their beast-like effort to gather control over the whole world. Another way of saying that is that our modern magicians are driven to substitute man's decree of predestination over God's decree. And that has been the nightmarish dream of humanism since the fall of man in the Garden of Eden. But as we have learned here today, hopefully, our Lord declares in the face of human efforts to the contrary, God will not be used by fallen man. Rather, if we would have life, we must submit to his divine will, and we should do so gladly. Let us pray.